Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women of Death Row. Hello, I'm Amanda. I'm Marielle. Thanks for coming back and listening. <laughs> Welcome to our home. I wonder if it's Christmas oh. when people are hearing this. Maybe. And if so, Merry, Merry Christmas. friggin' Christmas. If you happy don't celebrate holidays. Christmas, then happy December 25th. Yep. So don't fuck with cats. Oh my God. I, okay. I found actually a thread that showed you the parts to skip with the animal cruelty and stuff. Oh, man. I ended up finding it. But, oh my god. Yeah. The video part, I feel like, yeah, they needed to have some content warnings. And I definitely was like, oh, turn away, mute the f- TV. Yeah. But I, I, so many twists and turns. Don't want to give any spoilers, but. But Luca Magnota. Holy fuck. Is a narcissistic killer yeah (laughs) and his mom's delusional oh god i don't know but if you haven't seen it watch it worth it look for the parts that the timestamps that you know where to skip for animal cruelty maybe i'll post that with the instagram post oh yeah for this episode yeah so you guys can have that but watch it it was so good i binged it i did too I didn't get to, yeah. Just, I, I was like, oh, I'll just start one episode and then go to bed. My mouth didn't close. I was just like, uh, the whole time. Yes, and all these 90s cult films he was using as, like, inspiration. <sighs> okay, no spoilers. No spoilers, but oh. anyway, don't fuck with cats. Jesus. And then it's like when, what was her name, Gina, Deanna, at the end, one of the internet nerds, oh, yeah. Deanna, Dom, John Green, when she looks at the camera, I was like, were we complicit? Are you complicit for watch? Just right. watch it. Ugh. You gotta watch it. So worth it. Yeah. Gosh. And then another news, I guess, murder related. I saw an article that Charlize Theron's mom shot her husband, Charlize's dad, to death when? in self defense. Something like thirty years ago. Holy shit! Yeah. So apparently, he was an abusive person, alcoholic, and um, one night he came home drunk. And Charlize and her mom hid in the bathroom or something, and he was pounding on the door and his, with a gun, and Charlize's mom got the gun and shot him. Shit. hmm I didn't know about that. Yeah, and she, Charlize did an interview talking about how she's not ashamed of it, and... Yeah. But, yeah. That would be heavy. I know. Could you imagine? But her mom didn't serve any time or anything, because it was self-defense. Wow. Well, that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Marielle and I were at Dollar Tree today at the same time, oh, and we yeah. didn't realize it. I was calling her to ask her what all I needed to get at Dollar Tree, and I heard a phone ring at, like, exactly the same time, and I heard hello, and I was like, oh, that's her, and then I looked at the next aisle, and there she was. Hello. It was so crazy. That was crazy. I think I scared you when I walked behind you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? Because I heard your voice, and I heard it in my speaker, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> fucking matrix or some shit 
Let's get to it then. Yeah, here we go. Is yours like super dark and depressing at the end? Mine either. Who's going first? Kind of Rochambeau or yeah. I went first last time. So if you want to go first this time. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about the fortune teller murder. Do, 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 do. Yeah. So it was uh, just a little south of L.A. in Orange County, which I did not know this until I researched this case, that Orange County has the largest Vietnamese population in the country. Oh, really? And that's why it's called Little Saigon. So rich cultural history in that area, which, of course, brings like a lot of ancient beliefs and practices. April 25th, 2005, young Tran was stopping by his ex-girlfriend's house, trying to get back in her good graces. He left coffee and snacks, and there was, like, a bracelet that he thought was her mom's, like, that was just, like, a few steps away from the door, so he put that there, too. But then, hours later, when he returned, everything was still on the doorstep. And then he looks in the windows and immediately needs to call 911. So the police arrive, and all the police that were interviewed were like, it's unforgettable. Some of them, like, had to walk away. Like, they just couldn't understand. Like, it was just something they'd never seen. So there was a woman lying dead on the kitchen floor, her face covered with cloth and white paint. And they said that they could see some blood beneath the paint. And this was Anita. She's 23 years old. Um. She had stab wounds, defensive wounds, and then just feet away was her mom, Ha Smith's body, also covered in wet paint. I mean, white paint. It was probably still wet, but. So, (laughs) but Ha's body was in like a bowing position with her arms stretched out, kind of like extended child's pose in yoga. Yeah. And so Ha Smith was 52, mother of Anita. And then Detective Timothy Vu says it was a very bloody crime scene. He said there was a knife found near the victims. And then there were other missing knives from the kitchen, like block. So since there's other knives missing, that suggests there's more than one killer. And they came unarmed because they were using knives that were in the house. So they're like, what the fuck's the motive? Everyone's just puzzled. Mm -hmm. They said that Ha's middle finger was extended in an obscene gesture, which I assume like flipping the bird. And, like, white paint, though, is there a mystical significance, ritualistic, or was it just to cover something up? Like, they're just like, what the fuck? And they said that the house was filled with a lot of Ha's expensive and symbolic belongings. Cops observed what one dumbass cop said they were shrines, and he was shook. Like, he found there were, like, some bones at the bottom of, like, one of the shelves of the shrines. And he's like, I don't know if these are animal or human. It's like, dude, those are probably a chicken bone. But they nothing are, was they, missing. No. So, and they weren't shrines. They're altars yeah. with, you know, so, deities and yeah. little layers and shit. Yeah. So the home was ransacked. It looked like every corner had been searched through and just fucked up. They said that leaving a home in such a destructive disarray suggests that this was, like, done f- out of rage and mm. anger. And the attacker's method was extremely up close and personal by stabbing them and then having the bodies be objectified and manipulated into different positions. There was a message. Like, yeah. They were sending. So then the detectives found a bag of bloody knives, 
which they said were likely left behind whenever the attackers were making a hasty getaway. Mm -hmm. So they're just dumb and forgot a bag of fucking knives. So Ha was a fortune teller with a large clientele, like, extending across the nation. She was very wealthy, had a lot of jewelry, which they were like, okay, that could be a motive. But there were no signs of forced entry. So they start looking at young Tran, who was Anita's ex who called 911, since they'd recently had a falling out. Mm. So her family's devastated by the news. They're saying, you know, the pain and image of their loved ones murdered in such a way will never leave them. Anita's cousin said she looked up to Anita as a role model because she was so bright and had just been accepted into law school. She was a kind person. She was often participating in volunteer activities. So the suspect list grows. It turns out there's a lot of people who had a grudge against Ha. And invest- ha the mom? Uh-huh. Investigators spent hours combing the home for clues, and they believed there were two attackers, and they had to have known Ha because there was no sign of forced entry. So still looking at Tramp, then they say that they learned that Ha had hired a handyman, and... This handyman agreed to be questioned. He arrived to the police station covered in white paint. It was on his clothes, shoes, his hands, etc. Police can't wrap their heads around the white paint aspect of this crime scene. And so they're searching the national database. There's nothing. They look up any religious significance. And one cop was like, I found that white represents a warning. And it's like, all right. Did you ask Jeeves, bro? (laughs) So then they're digging deeper into Ha's life, just trying to learn anything about anyone who may have wanted to do this to her. So was the handyman Vietnamese-American? They didn't say. Um, They didn't say his name or anything because he was ruled out. Really? I'll get to that. Turns out fortune telling in the Vietnamese community is a big business and Ha was regarded as one of the best and she reaped many rewards, especially large cash rewards. Mm -hmm. And then four years prior to the murders, two men entered Ha's home, tied her up, robbed her house. Two years before the murders? Four. Four. So four years before she's robbed, home invasion robbery, she's tied up. And later it's identified that these were... Two members of an Asian gang. Mm. So after that, Ha's like becoming very secretive and very protective of her belongings and her wealth and da da da. And then back to the crime scene, the cops are like, okay, there's blood trails and smears, which means someone was either being drugged or attempting to escape. And it's a frenzied attack, which means it's clearly full of rage. Anita's face, the daughter, was the most significantly wounded part Aww. of her. Ha had many deep defensive wounds and was hit with a glass bottle. Both of them died due to a loss of blood. So young trans ruled out as a suspect. The paint on the handyman didn't match that of the crime scene, so he was ruled out. And the Asian gang members were cleared also because they were incarcerated at the time. So they're like, okay, could this have been like a disgruntled customer? And then they're like, oh, wait. At the crime scene, there was a bloody footprint in the bathroom, like someone was attempting to clean themselves up, and it appeared to be that of a woman. Mm. So neighbors witnessed a man and a woman going back and forth around the home, and one of the neighbors was like, the garage door was open, like, only about two foot up, and I remember seeing them just go back and forth in and out of there. And he said that the woman was in her 40s, just a little slightly younger looking than the man. So case kind of... 
hits a point where they're like, all right, we don't have any suspects mm-hmm. or leads. But then it becomes re-energized when it's discovered that someone's making phone calls from Ha's phone and spending money from both Ha and Anita's accounts. Hmm. In total, going on a shopping spree of $75,000. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the female suspect is caught on surveillance making purchases with the credit cards. And it strongly resembled the artist's rendering that they had of the suspect's. Trail goes cold again. Then months later, charges begin popping up again on the accounts. Someone had purchased plane tickets for five people departing North Carolina, destined for Orange County. So detectives go undercover on the flight. And at this point, like, they're still clueless as to who, like, to expect for, like, this heinous crime. And so a woman matching the suspect's description boards the flight with children and the officer's like, strongly doubted this was who they were looking for, but they decided to put a surveillance team on her anyway. So they discover the woman going on a shopping spree using the victim's credit cards, and then they surprised her at her apartment and arrested her. So the woman is identified as Tanya Nelson, a sex shop owner from North Carolina and strong ties to Little Saigon. Hmm. When given an opportunity to explain her possession and use of the credit cards, she clams up and declined and requested an attorney. So she remains in police custody. Investigators fly to North Carolina, to Roanoke Rapids, to search her home. And it was full of stolen property and full of stuff that was purchased with stolen cards. Mm. They also found a calendar. And marked in the calendar on the date of April 21st was written, Horrible Sin. Mm. Yeah. So they start looking more into Tanya's background. They find out that she was born to very wealthy parents in Vietnam and grew up getting basically anything she ever wanted. She never made decisions before seeking advice from a fortune teller, and later Ha becomes her fortune teller. She was seeking advice from Ha on an affair she was having with her husband's younger brother, Loy. Yikes. Uh-huh. So at first, her tarot readings were of good fortune and romance and success, Tanya becomes obsessed with her lover, and at the same time, Loy starts feeling guilt-ridden. Mm. And so he tries to escape by moving to North Carolina. So Tanya goes to Ha, hoping for a favorable reading, and when she doesn't receive the fortune she wanted, she then requests Ha cast a spell on Loy, and Ha turns her down. So then Tanya moves to North Carolina... Jeez. Opens up her sex shop next to a church, continues obsessing, blowing her money, flying back and forth to California to have Ha read her fortune. But no matter how much she spent, she was not satisfied and she became furious and like putting the blame on Ha. He's just not into you, girl. God. He's not that into you anymore. Right? Well, listen to this. Loy and his girlfriend went on a vacation, and while they were away, Tanya burglarized their home and vandalized the inside. She pulled a home alone move and turned all the faucets (laughs) on and left the faucets running in true wet bandit fashion. (laughs) So Loy knew immediately that it was Tanya who did that. Tanya had taken one of the photos the couple had in their home. And she still had it on her, like, when she was arrested. Like, it was a picture of the couple, and she still had it on her purse when she was arrested. What a weirdo! For real. So, her tactics start to escalate. She recruited her son to help scare Loy, 
And then she ended up assaulting him and fleeing. There was a psychologist I was interviewed, and she was like, all this narcissism, delusion, obsession, and compulsion. Tanya refused to accept Lloyd's rejection. She refocuses her blame on Ha. And then investigators found a boarding pass in her North Carolina home that uncovered a second suspect, Felipe Zamora, also from Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. During interrogation, Felipe's caught lying several times, and he unveils his secret that he's gay and he's being manipulated by Tanya because she finds him male lovers in Saigon who fulfill his sexual desires. Hmm. So Tanya was blackmailing him with this secret and used it against him for her own fucked up shit. So Felipe accompanies Tanya to Cali, saying, quote, she made me do it. During her visit with Ha, she just snapped, and Anita, her daughter, hears the struggle, runs in the kitchen. Felipe doing every horrible act that she demanded. He said that he killed Anita and Tanya killed Ha. Mm. She's like, all right, one more thing. She said there's, she's like demanding this ritual with white paint. So Felipe was like saying how Anita's eyes were still open and he had to cover her face with the cloth because he just couldn't bear looking at her. And then poid, poid, poured the white paint over her and still only Tanya knew the reason behind the white paint. So Tanya just completely defiles Ha and her daughter in their home and claimed that Ha's deceitful and that she was betrayed by her. Anita was just an unfortunate bystander. So they described this as a trial of greed, lust, obsession, revenge, gay sex, straight sex, the occult, stealing, and murder. (laughs) Yeah, some male author wrote that. (laughs) I think his name was Tim something. So Tanya remained silent. The prosecutors actually had very little physical evidence The knives in the bag only identified Felipe as an attacker, and the paint did a good job of ruining any potential evidence. Both of them are charged two counts of first-degree murder. They have weapons and a motive, but there's still very little physical evidence for what is going to be a death penalty case. Felipe has no prior criminal record, so he sought a plea deal to testify against Tanya to avoid death sentencing. Tanya had no criminal background, as well, and the f- prosecutor feared that Felipe would take the fall for the murders. Mm. That footprint, though, it matched Tanya's foot perfectly. <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> so, jury finds Tanya, mother of four, guilty. She began screaming and demanding to speak to the jury, and then she was taken out of the courtroom for being disruptive. A family member of Ha was in the courtroom and witnessed the outburst, and she said, Tanya is not a human. There's no no human can be that evil and, you know, etc. Yeah. April 23rd, 2010, five years later, Tanya received the death penalty for murdering Ha and her daughter Anita. The Orange County District Attorney's Office released a statement that included the recounting of what Ha's older sister and Anita's aunt told the court at sentencing, that no amount of time will ever heal the pain nor erase the memory of the ingrained and Mm -hmm. horrific images, nor the silence, the gut-wrenching testimony that has been exhibited and addressed in this court. And that is the fortune teller murder. That is sad. Yeah. Like, that was their home. Wow. She was fucking nuts. Knocking butts. All right. What are you going to do? I'm going to tell you the story of Lizzie Halliday, a lady serial killer. My sources are Wikipedia, New York Daily News, Casebook.org, and I watched a YouTube video 
on brief cases the um, YouTube channel called The Dark and Terrifying Case of Lizzie Halliday. This lady was fucking crazy. Lizzie Halliday was born Eliza Margaret McNally. She was an Irish-American serial killer who was responsible for the death of four people in upstate New York oh, shit. during the 1890s. So in 1894, she became the first woman sentenced to death by electric chair in New York. And while she has been held responsible for those four deaths I'm about to tell you about, it's suspected that she's responsible for more. And there's a conspiracy theory surrounding her, too. Oh, shit. Okay. So Lizzie was born in County Antrim, Ireland around 1859. No one knows, like, what her birthday was. Yeah. According to sources, when Lizzie was between ages three or eight, (laughs) her family moved to the U.S. In 1879, when Lizzie was 20 years old, she married a man from Greenwich, New York, named Charles Hopkins, whose real name was Ketspool Brown. So some articles say she was 20 years old when she married him. Others say she was 15. Somewhere in the middle. 15 to 20. Three or eight. We don't really know. So Lizzie and Charles had one son, but it was reported that the son was later institutionalized. Mm. I couldn't get more information about it, but yeah. So Charles Hopkins dies two years after they were married. Shortly after Charles's death, Lizzie married Artemis, Artemis, I think it's Artemis Brewer. He died less than a year after they were married. She married a third man. uh, I'm sorry. She married a third time, I guess, to a third man, Hiram (laughs) Parkinson. And he left Lizzie within the first year of their marriage. So he's alive. (laughs) I guess. Marriage just wasn't working out for her. She married a fourth time to George Smith, who was a war veteran, and he served with her second husband, Artemis Brewer. So he served in the, I don't know what war it was. The War of 1850? I don't know. I don't remember. I'm sure it told me somewhere, but I didn't think it was like too relevant to the story. Or 1812, not 1850. It would be the first way later. Yeah, they got married. I didn't really say a year. Dates and stuff are kind of hard for this because it's like the late 1800s. So while she was married to George Smith, she fled to Bellows Falls, Vermont, after her failed attempt to poison George to death. So while married to George Smith, Lizzie fled to Bellows Falls, Vermont, after her failed attempt to poison George to death by putting arsenic in his tea. He made a full recovery. And then Lizzie married Charles Playstell, who was a resident of Vermont, but she vanished two weeks later after they married. Okay. So in 1888, Lizzie turned up at a saloon in Philadelphia, and the saloon was owned by a family that she had known in Ireland, the McQuillans. At the time, Lizzie is using an alias Maggie Hopkins. And while she was living in Philadelphia, she opened up a shop, but it doesn't specify what kind of shop, but she burned that shop down and collected the insurance money. Shit. She was sentenced to two years in Eastern State Penitentiary. For insurance fraud? I don't know. Not the charges at the time. Burning a building and probably insurance fraud. So now let's go to 1889. Lizzie is now going by Lizzie Brown and is working in Burlingham, New York as a housekeeper to 70-year-old farmer Paul Halliday and his sons. Paul and Lizzie marry. Duh. Mm-hmm. However, according to sources, their marriage was marred due to Lizzie's quote-unquote spells of insanity. Within two years of the marriage, in 1891, the Halliday house and barn burned to the ground, and Lizzie said she was able to get out, but Paul's son was not able to get out. And um, Paul's son was quote-unquote mentally handicapped, so he had some sort of developmental delay, I read in later articles, and it was reported that she didn't like him. 
Oh, God. Um, so Lizzie's suspect number one here. She was arrested, sentenced to an asylum, and then was transferred to a different asylum and was deemed cured and then released and returned home to Paul Holiday. Holiday. Celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. In August 1891, Paul disappeared. Lizzie claimed Paul went to another town to do some masonry work, but a neighbor found that story to be suspicious, and a search warrant was obtained. And then on September 4th of that year, the bodies of two women were found buried in some hay in a barn. Both women had been shot and were identified as Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. Do you remember that name? Yes. The McQuillans. They were New York residents whose family Lizzie had stayed with in Philadelphia, who they knew back in Ireland. While Lizzie was being questioned for the murders of Margaret and Sarah, they couldn't get a lot out of her because she was, quote unquote, behaving erratically, tearing at her clothes, talking incoherently, but she remained in custody and some people thought she was faking her insanity. And then a few days after Margaret and Sarah McQuillan's bodies were found, Paul Halliday's mutilated body was found under the floorboard of his home. Jesus. Paul had been shot. Lizzie was charged with the murders of Margaret and Sarah McQuillan and for the murder of Paul Halliday. She was held to wait for trial at the Sullivan County Jail in Monticello, New York. Monticello or Monticello? I I don't know. Either one. Whatever. I'm right. Um, (laughs) During the months Lizzie was being held waiting for trial, she refused to eat. She attacked the sheriff's wife. I don't know what the sheriff's wife was doing there. Not that it's her fault she got attacked. It's just a weird person that's (laughs) the wife. And back then, she was allowed to leave the house. (laughs) She set fire to her own bed. Lizzie tried to hang herself and cut her own throat with broken glass. Shit. Stating, I thought I would cut myself to see if I would bleed. Her jailers were forced to chain her to the floor during the remaining months there. Oh, no. So I'm like, I don't know a lot. They don't go into a lot of like her quote unquote insanity and her quote unquote behaving erratically. But it Mm -hmm. sounds like she's having some psychosis. Yeah. I don't know. So while in jail, Lizzie Halliday gained a lot of press notoriety and received um, national attention. Sorry. I was, whenever, I was just heard you finishing that. She gained a lot of weight. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but she wasn't eating, so who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> one story about Lizzie after the other. So one story about Lizzie after the other was being published in tabloids. Papers speculated about the number of people she had killed and even suggested that she was jack the ripper due to lizzie being in europe at the time of the Whitechapel murders and that she was speaking frequently about the Whitechapel murders as those 11 people's murders have been unsolved holy shit however no connections were ever made that lizzie was jack the ripper so that's a conspiracy and then Nellie bly who was a pioneer investigative journalism she actually wanted to go to a mental institution and, like, be admitted. And then eventually they admitted her thinking that she was an actual patient. But someone, her boss, got her out after eight days. So this Nellie Bly lady was hardcore, wanted to experience what people were experiencing. And she's so known as, like, a pioneer investigative journalist. Yeah, they kind of did an homage to her in Asylum. American Horror Story. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll have to rewatch Asylum. But she interviewed Lizzie in the institution for the New York World, and a headline was published, A Woman Without a Heart. So according to NewYorkDailyNews.com, I just copy and pasted this. So, quote, it is a long story, Lizzie said, and it is over many murders besides those already known. Lizzie talked about her six husbands, mostly aged veterans who died or fled shortly after marriage. She also gave her account of recent murders, which was that she had been drugged by gypsies, whom she could not name due to fear for her life, 
and was forced to watch the killings of her husband, Paul, and Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. So on June 21st, 1894, Lizzie was convicted at the Sullivan County Oyer and Terminer Court for the murder of Margaret McQuillan and Sarah Jane McQuillan. Lizzie became the first woman ever to be sentenced to death by electrocution via New York's brand new electric chair. Oh, God. Governor Roswell P. Flower commuted her sentence to life in a mental institution after a medical commission declared she was insane. Yeah. Lizzie was sent to Matawan Matawan Mm -hmm. State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she spent the remainder of her life. In 1906, she killed a nurse, Nellie Wicks, by stabbing her 200 times with a pair of scissors. Fuck. Yep. Lizzie died on June 28th, 1918. So. Good God. That was the story of Lizzie Halliday, the first woman sentenced to death via New York's bright and shiny new electric chair. Which, back then, I can only imagine, like, that probably had to take a long time to kill someone. Probably. Voltage, just because I don't know how. Well, how long had electricity, electricity been but, yeah. around at that time? They probably put, like, a metal pot on her head. Because even in the 80s when they executed Ted Bundy. It took a while. Well, and, like, they had put out, like, a PSA. If you unplug all your appliances, turn off your TVs at this time and between this time and this time, it'll, you know. Oh, wow. We're less likely to interrupt your power, blah, 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 during his execution. Yeah. Well, and there, there was a story I did about a lady that I don't we posted that it took a long time for her to die by electric chair, too. So that is a really terrible way to to die kill someone. Yeah. So I'm looking up now. So the first execution via the electric chair was 1890. They executed William Kemmler in New York. Proponents of that of electrocution, including Thomas Edison, touted the new method as quick, effective, painless, and humane. <laughs> this is from deathpenaltyinfo.org. Oh my god. <laughs> the article says 125 years ago, first execution using electric chair was botched. So Thomas Edison was there. Wow. Father of electricity. So yeah, but she didn't. She wasn't killed. She died at the mental institution when, at that point. But I'll show you a picture of her. They don't really have a lot of pictures of her. Like, oh, wow. like, like a lot of articles use this picture of her. Mm-hmm. She looks really kind of crazy there. Yeah. It's her too. It kind of reminds me of... No, it's not her. Of course, I'm only going to remember the book title now. I can't remember her actual name, but Alias Grace. Oh, I need to watch that. Yeah. And then this is Nellie Bly. Mm-hmm. Aw. Mm-hmm. So there you go. This was kind of like an old one. Yeah, an old timey. Old timey. I haven't done one of those yet. Well... Have a very happy holidays. Happy, happy holidays. And maybe happy new year. I don't know what the calendar looks like, so I can't think of we're going to be. New year is on a Wednesday. Oh, so we'll probably have a recording. Yeah, we might take a break. We'll see. But just keep looking out for our new episodes. Yeah. Oh, we have a Twitter now. Oh, yeah. We are just women of death row on everything yeah instagram facebook twitter uh, twitter website um, yeah thanks for listening everybody did we introduce ourselves in the beginning i don't think no. we did <laughs> hang on i'm gonna do this do this i need to put a post-it on the mic introduce your introduce goddamn self your fucking self <laughs> <laughs> who are you man but rate review subscribe download we're officially on spotify which is really really exciting that's my personal preferred listening app so it's really cool to kind of see us on there yeah it is nuts also our facebook page is blowing up 
So I know. thanks for everybody liking that. And if you're coming from Facebook, write a little comment that you listened or... Yeah, totally. Let us know where you're coming from. Yeah, how'd you find us? Say it in a comment. Yeah, maybe or we'll do little Easter thingy. eggs in our episodes and type... Like, whatever platform you're listening to. Whatever. I don't know. I'll figure something out. I like those kind of interactive game things. Oh, yeah. And maybe, like, eventually when we have stickers and merch and stuff, we'll send you something if you figure out the Easter egg. (gasps) Yeah. I'm a genius. Yeah. I love that. So keep listening. Oh, you know what? What? And while you're with your family, let them know about this new podcast you've been listening to. And maybe... yeah. Maybe you'll get them interested. Or... If they don't use their podcast app, take their phone, subscribe anyway, they'll never know. Yep, there you go. So, all right, now you can leave. Goodbye. That's your homework. Get Goodbye. out of here. <laughs>